Hello, and welcome to the February 24th, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. We are finally, at long last, into the last few weeks of what I can only describe as what has been a really dispiriting winter here in the Northern Hemisphere, and all I can say is thank goodness. Watching all of my friends in the Southern Hemisphere luxuriating as they have been in the warmth and basking in the long days of training outdoors has me pining for the end of what seems like one of the colder and snowier few months that I can remember since I moved down here a couple of decades ago. Fortunately, it won't be long now before all of us get to finally dust off our bikes and start riding outside once more. But I know that I am not alone in thinking that March 21st can't come quickly enough. Of course, with the change of seasons from winter to spring, that also means that the competitive season can't be too far behind. For many, that might mean that you are considering a triathlon camp as part of your early season training plans as a means to springboard your fitness and double down on your race readiness just as the weather warms up. Now, I have spoken about triathlon camps before and have been a pretty consistent in my support for them as a great way for athletes to learn things about themselves, address weaknesses that they might have, and get one-on-one coaching in a way that can have a really meaningful impact for the long term. Camps exist all across North America and honestly around the world, and depending on your interests and your budget, you can easily find something that will suit your needs and help make you a better triathlete, not to mention let you meet other like-minded people who share your love for this lifestyle. If you are considering a camp or have ever wondered about one, I wanted to let you know that Life Sport Coaching, the company that I coach with, is hosting our second spring triathlon camp in St. George, Utah from March 22nd to the 26th. I'm going to be there along with my friend and colleague Juliet Hawkman, and together we are going to provide coaching and clinics in the pool, on the bike, on the run, and for transitions, as well as give talks on swim technique analysis, training and race nutrition, and more. If you're interested in learning more, you can head over to lifesportcoaching.com and look for the Camps and Clinics tabs under Programs, or I'll put the link in the show notes. Even if you're not looking to do a camp in March, I would strongly advise athletes to consider making a training camp part of their program at some point. They are a really rewarding experience and can make a big difference to your season and to your career in this sport. I'll also include a link in the show notes to a video on my YouTube channel where I discuss camps in general and give some things to look for when selecting one. On the show today, I have another medical segment in which I answer questions submitted by my listeners to the private group on Facebook dedicated to this podcast. Since I started that group, it has continued to grow slowly but steadily, and I have been really happy that it has served not only as a source of feedback to me about this program, but also as a source of questions that I can answer to be sure that this podcast continues to serve my listeners in the best way possible. By providing evidence-based and scientifically sound answers to the things that you really want to know, this group has provided me a really good conduit to get the kinds of questions that I think will serve you guys best. Well, today I'm going to be addressing two such questions. First, is there any evidence to support the inclusion of stretching as part of a warm-up to training? And second, are there any global kinds of guidelines or advice that can be applied to injury recovery and rehabilitation? I take a look at the science on both of these, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I have a conversation with Canadian Olympic athlete and now professional triathlete Matt Sharp. 
Matt has been in and around triathlon and having success for quite some time now. He raced in the Tokyo Olympics before transitioning to the 70.3 circuit and has several podium finishes there, including his first win at the Boulder 70.3 last August. Matt is also the author of a new triathlon e-newsletter, The Tempo, that synthesizes the latest triathlon news, trivia, and even science into an easy five-minute read. We talk about all of that and more, and you can hear it all in just a short while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment once again to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. Just last week, the most recent bonus episode was released featuring a full-length interview with professional triathlete Maddie Weitz. You may remember that I discussed a YouTube video by Whites a couple of months ago in which he made some interesting arguments about whether or not Ironman and the World Triathlon Corporation was in real trouble. Well, in this bonus episode, we talk about that as well as about his journey from top age grouper to new professional, and it's available now along with many other bonus episodes only for my Patreon subscribers. For North American subscribers, at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access to all the bonus episodes and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. It's going to be a bit of a mixed bag today on the medical segment as I do my best to catch up on a couple of listener-submitted questions to the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group. First up, I'm going to take on the subject of stretching, and then I'm going to look on how to approach injury rehabilitation, and in this regard, I'm going to take kind of a 30,000-foot view. That is to say, I'm going to be very general in my discussion and stay away from discussing specific injuries, since there really is so much nuance in this matter. But let's start with the question of stretching. Xenia asks whether or not there is any evidence to support the inclusion of stretching into a warm-up or cool-down routine for training and racing. Given how prevalent stretching is, not to mention the advice about stretching, you might think this would be a fairly straightforward question to answer, and that there would be a lot of evidence out there supporting this practice. The reality, though, turns out to be not quite that clear-cut. The theory behind why athletes should stretch before and or after exercise is itself pretty straightforward. When we stretch, so the theory goes, we loosen up our muscles and get them prepared for the activity that they are about to be asked to perform. Stretching also allows for increased blood flow to muscles and tendons, and again prepares them for effort and should minimize the likelihood of injury. Or at least, that's how the theory goes. Alas, this is yet another occasion when something sounds perfectly sensible, but where experimentation just kind of fails to confirm the hypothesis. You see, a host of experiments have been done on the impacts of stretching across all manner of sports, and the results with respect to some elements of this question are pretty clear, while with respect to others, it remains a little bit unclear and a little muddy. With respect to what seems clear, stretching has been repeatedly shown not so much to help performance, but to actually impair it, specifically impair muscular performance. Uh, 
I know, that's probably not what you were expecting, but it is true. In study after study, it has been shown that stretching, particularly static stretching, that's the kind of stretching where you stand in place and just kind of bend over to stretch your hamstrings or stretch your calves or whatever you're stretching. When you do that, you impair muscle strength and to a lesser extent, muscle power. In a meta-analysis, remember, a meta-analysis is the kind of study where you gather together a whole bunch of different papers and pool all of the data in order to get a larger sample size. In that kind of study, published in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports in 2012, the authors summarized the data from 104 studies comprising almost a 1,000 subjects and found that both static and, to a lesser extent, dynamic stretching negatively impacted muscle performance. Now, why would this be? Well, that part isn't so clear, but some have suggested that subjecting the muscles to stretch causes changes to muscle fibers and protein linkages within those muscle fibers at a microscopic and even submicroscopic level that results in negative consequences for muscular performance. So rather than setting up the muscles for success, Stretching may actually be putting the muscle tissue in a starting state that makes it less able to do what it needs to. The second part of the question for stretching relates to whether or not injury rates are affected. And here we're talking about whether or not injury rates are diminished. In other words, is stretching protective somehow against injury? And here, the answer is less certain. There are some studies that suggest that stretching does in fact reduce some kinds of injuries, specifically muscle strains, but other studies fail to show this benefit. And larger studies with pooled data from multiple investigations generally fail to show that stretching is particularly beneficial in preventing overuse injuries or acute injuries to the muscles or tendons. Still, there is no evidence that I could find that suggests that stretching may be harmful. So the take-home message here needs to emphasize that point, that stretching has a negative impact on performance and probably no impact on injury rates. That is to say, while it doesn't protect, it's not going to make things worse. What stretching definitely can do for athletes, and this is without a doubt, is make them more flexible. Over time, Athletes who stretch regularly have definitely been shown in very demonstrable ways to have improvements in flexibility. But again, this improvement in flexibility does not result in any positive changes in either performance or injury prevention. Several authors have looked at an alternative to stretching and have found that an active warm-up is much more likely to prevent injury than is stretching, and it doesn't diminish performance. Active warm-up is generally a slow and easy effort in the activity that you're going to be training in that day. So if you're running, for example, starting out at a low pace and intensity for a period of time, generally five minutes or more, is considered an active warm-up, and doing the same at the end would be an active cool-down. If you're biking, doing a similar amount of time at an easy pace, and if swimming, doing two to 500 meters or yards easy before starting into your main sets. These active warm-ups and a similar cool-down should be a part of all of your training and even racing, and scientifically speaking, are much better than stretching. Now, if flexibility is something that you prize, then by all means, incorporate stretching into your routine. But my advice would be to do that as an independent activity and not so much as part of your warm-up as it's likely to impair performance, as we've already discussed. Okay, so that's the answer to the stretching question. Now let me take on the second question raised by a different listener. 
Dan wants to know if there are any general guidelines that I might be able to provide on how to approach injuries and rehabilitation. Specifically, he wanted to know if there are any rules that we can use, kind of generically, to help understand when to return to training normally and when to pump the brakes. As I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, this is actually a pretty difficult question to answer, mostly because not all injuries are the same, and also because not all people with injuries are the same. However, I'm going to try to give some very basic guidance to cover injuries in general, but I want to caution that this should not be taken to be specific advice and should not be taken as a substitute for seeing a healthcare professional and getting a specific treatment plan for a specific injury that you might have. First of all, let's consider the different kinds of injuries that we commonly develop as endurance athletes. As a most basic way of categorizing them, we can think of injuries as being acute, chronic, or from overuse. An acute injury is something that happens in the moment. Most of the time, this tends to be traumatic in nature. For example, you're out running and you roll your ankle, or you're out on your bike and you have a crash and you sustain a bad bruise to your hip, or you're in the pool and you accidentally have the swimmer's high five where you smack hands with a passing swimmer going in the opposite direction, who unfortunately on this day happens to be using paddles. Ouch. In each of these instances, the injury is sudden, it's painful, and almost always necessitates that you stop whatever activity you're doing in order to seek treatment, even if that treatment is nothing more than just shaking your hand or getting some ice or putting on a Band-Aid. Now, some acute injuries can persist and become long-term. For example, if you have a sudden tear of your hamstring tendon, this can become a chronic painful injury that persists over time. And chronic injuries are almost always related to something that happened acutely and then was not allowed to heal properly. Finally, the last type of injury results from overuse, and this is almost always related to repeated micro-injury and inflammation and manifests as pain and swelling, most often in tendons and occasionally in joints. Okay, so how can an athlete approach each of these types of injuries and have a sense of how long they should rest and how they should return to training? Again, these are going to be very generic guidelines, but I think that you can apply them to a wide range of possible injuries as a starting point. For example, let's consider acute injuries. My first guideline for acute injuries relates to whether or not you think something is broken. If the answer is yes, well, you kind of need to get that looked at right away. But let's assume, though, that everything looks okay. Nothing's pointing in the wrong direction. Nothing is obviously dislocated. Instead, you just have pain. Now, like any good parent or coach, my next bit of advice is try and walk it off. If you're unable to weight bear because of pain, well, then I think again, you kind of have an idea of what you need to do. If you can walk on it or move your arm or whatever it is that's causing you discomfort, then the next question is, is it getting better with time or is it persistently uncomfortable? If it's improving reasonably quickly, then whatever you did is probably minor and it's worth getting it's worth trying to get right back to what you were doing if however it's persistently uncomfortable don't be a hero cancel whatever it is that you were doing and give your body about 24 hours or so and then see how it's going any acute injuries that swell up should be treated with ice and elevation and you should consider getting assessed by a healthcare professional now that isn't to say that the absence of swelling is a guarantee it's not it's certainly promising, but not 100% guaranteed that you haven't done something of consequence. 
The next question to consider with an acute injury is, does it hurt when you're at rest or only when you move the affected part or put weight on it? In general, an injury that hurts at rest is likely more significant and should be looked at. One that hurts only with movement can be observed for a trial of the what I like to call the tincture of time to see if it improves over a few hours or a few days. The most important thing about managing acute injuries is giving them that time to heal. Because not doing so and trying to tough it out through pain is a surefire way for an acute injury to become a chronic one. So pay heed to pain. If it hurts when you use it, then you're probably making things worse. So stop and give yourself more time to heal. Now, if you blew right through this advice and are now dealing with a chronic injury, well, all is not lost, but you're definitely going to be faced with a much lengthier recovery time than if you had just let the acute injury heal completely in the first place. Chronic injuries tend to cause lower-level dull pain as opposed to the more intense sharp pain of acute injuries, and unlike acute injuries, chronic injuries often feel worse after exercise rather than with exercise. The means of treating a chronic injury is very much dependent on what the injury is, but some guidelines can be applied here as well. First and foremost, you can make chronic injuries worse by ignoring them, so it's best to get a diagnosis and embark upon a treatment plan as soon as possible. The good news is, though, that with many chronic injuries, you don't really have to completely stop the offending activity, but you might need to modify it. For example, you might still be able to run, but you may have to do it using an Alter-G or some other similar device. The main point here is not to ignore chronic injuries. Even those minor annoying ones can become something worse if you aren't careful. So best to get it looked at and get a plan sooner rather than later. Finally, let's spend a short amount of time discussing overuse injuries. Overuse injuries are almost always related to tendinopathies, though on occasion they can be joint-related as well. Overuse injuries develop for a few different reasons. Increasing volume too rapidly, inadequate strengthening of supporting muscle groups, poor choice of footwear or running surfaces, poor bike fit, poor swim technique, or the use of oversized swim paddles. In each of these cases, repeated stresses on tendons across a joint cause microtrauma and inflammation resulting in injury to the tendons. And these injuries can crop up suddenly, but can take a long time to heal. Depending on which tendon or joint is involved, the approach to treatment is going to differ, but the advice for return to training is going to tend to be similar. Because untreated or improperly healed tendinopathies can lead to tendon rupture, it is a bad idea to ignore them or to just suffer through their pain. Instead, you must be prepared to give these injuries adequate time to heal before attempting to come back. Then, once the pain has subsided, it's a good idea to start working on strengthening the muscles around the affected joint and on improving flexibility there. Address any fit or equipment issues that may have contributed to the injury in the first place, and when resuming activity, do so very slowly, with the minimal increases in volume over a long duration of time. The key to navigating these injuries is patience and obsessiveness to details in training, so don't rush things and be sure to back off at any signs of recurrent discomfort. Overuse injuries are the bane of many endurance athletes' existence, and that's why it is so important to put in the effort to try and prevent them from occurring in the first place. Well, I hope that this generic advice has been helpful for how to approach injuries. If you want to know how to manage a specific specific injury, or alternatively, if you have a 
different question altogether that you'd like for me to consider answering on the podcast, I hope that you'll send me an email. TRI underscore DOC at iCloud.com is how to do that. Alternatively, of course, you can do what Dan and Xenia did. Apply to join the private Facebook group for the TriDoc podcast on Facebook and drop your question in there. And I will be sure to have a look and let you know if I answer it right here on this program. If you had told me four years ago that over the course of doing this podcast, I would have the opportunity to chat with four Olympians from four different events across both winter and summer games, I'd probably have thought you were crazy. After speaking with cross-country skier Chris Freeman, rower Juliet Hockman, and curler Joanne Courtney, all of whom participated in the Olympics in different sports and then came to triathlon, I am excited to have yet another Olympian join me for a conversation on today's program. But this time, for the first time, the athlete in question is not making a change to triathlon. Rather, this time, the athlete in question actually participated in that sport at the Olympic Games. Matt Sharp first competed for Canada at the Junior Panel American Championships in 2008 where he represented Canada and he represented Canada at the 2014 Commonwealth Games, where he was part of a fourth place finish in the mixed team relay. In 2017, Matt earned four top 10 finishes at World Cup events and finished a career high 16th at the ITU Grand Final. He competed at his second Commonwealth Games in 2018, where he was the top Canadian in the men's race with his ninth place finish. He was also part of another fourth place finish in the mixed team relay. And Matt made his Olympic debut at Tokyo in 2020, or 2021, I guess, and set the pace during the bike, sitting as high as second place, where his role was to support his teammate, Tyler Mislichuk, and he competed in the mixed relay there as well. After the Olympics, Matt transitioned to a professional racing career that is off to a sparkling start with wins at St. Anthony and the Boulder 70.3 race, as well as other 70.3 podium finishes. He also found time somehow to get married to fellow triathlete Kirsten Casper and start a triathlon newsletter, The Tempo News. But somehow, I have managed to get him to slow down ever so briefly to have a chat with me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Matt, thanks so much for being here, and welcome. Awesome. Yeah, that was a perfect intro. That uh, you're, you're too kind. Thank you, uh, thank uh, you for having me. A little lengthy. I, gosh, I was, I was <laughs> like tripping over my tongue here. And, and I, uh, forgive me, I, I, and my listeners, I should explain, I'm recording this on the end, tail end of a terrible cold. So if I sound a little nasally, that's why. I, I'd love to hear, Matt, just uh, right off the top about your Olympic experience, because yours, of course, was an unusual one. You had the pandemic interruption. You had to go through the selection process more than once. I, I'm curious, uh, what was it all like? And, and how was the Games experience as a whole? Yeah, the uh, the lead up to the Olympics not easy for anyone, and and myself is no exception. But uh, when I finally got the call that I was going to be representing Team Canada, it was an absolute thrill. It was a you know, a lifetime goal of mine. I it was the Olympics for so much of my life had been my north star, and I was on the cusp of achieving that. So that was incredible. At the games, we went. Our our goal was literally to try and win a medal for Team Canada. So in my role, I was swimming and biking and as hard as I can and as tactically well as I can to uh, to help our teammate Tyler Mr. Chuck win a, win a medal. Unfortunately, we just didn't have the day that we wanted and it, it was tough to just not get the result you're looking for. But in the end, it was certainly for me worth worth that. It was worth it for me to to go for it, to to take that opportunity. And really, I guess at the end of the day, I was inspired by Simon Whitfield's gold medal in the Sydney Olympics. And so big picture, if I can create, help create the next generation of athletes with something like that, 
uh, that was certainly worth worth it for me. And representing Canada was such a huge honor for me. How much disappointment did you feel when the games were canceled or postponed, I guess, in the end in 2020? And then to have to find out you would have to re sort of qualify for the Olympic team? Yeah, it was uh, it was definitely tough. I mean, big picture with everything that was going on with COVID, not having a, a, a sporting event it kind of seemed a bit small in comparison. So I tried not to get too caught up in in that kind of stuff. I guess going into 2021, when we kind of knew the Olympics was going to be held, there was just uncertainty in what races were going to happen. And and from Triathlon Canada, it was a bit uncertain what the kind of qualifying landscape was going to look like. And so ultimately, we just, myself and my coach, Lance Watson, we just focused on making sure I was as ready to go as I, I could be. And, and we successfully did that. Did every country undergo the same sort of thing where they had to requalify or did some teams just take the same athletes that had qualified in 2020? I think some athletes had pre-qualified. So I think some Great Britain athletes that I know of have definitely pre-qualified. The way criteria were written, yeah, by the time the pandemic hit, some athletes just hadn't hit that qualifying criteria. And so for myself, I was one of those. And, and so, yeah, I just had to go through another year of, of just doing my best to make sure I was forcing the selection. <laughs> Right. Got it. Now, you've come out of that. You had a great experience through your ITU career, and you've made the transition to the longer distance. And I'm curious, what have you learned in your first season in racing 70.3 distance? Uh, I've learned learned it all. <laughs> no, it's been, <laughs> it's been such a rewarding experience doing something different. I think, I guess one of my first memories from this racing, the, this new event for me this year, uh, I look back on that St. Anthony's race and I was there uh, 5 a.m. at the transition zone, lined up in the porta potty just with everybody else. And I hadn't had that experience since I was almost a youth athlete racing. And so it was just a, a nice reminder of my roots, why I fell in love with the sport, because I just love competing and 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 being involved with maybe a bigger community. And so that was a huge learning for me early on was just man, I really do love this sport, even though maybe had some tough, tough moments in the past with it. But it just, yeah, kind of reinvigorated this, this love for the sport. Obviously, getting a win was super nice. But at the end of the day, just being involved with that community, connecting with new people was just so incredible. And then Boulder, I mean, that was a, <laughs> a big breakthrough. It was nice to actually see you out on course and doing so well. Uh, was that a surprise for you to actually win your first 70.3? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I it, that whole 70.3 distance, my longest race before that was an Olympic distance. So we're doubling it and plus. So literally before the race in the training, like I was scared I wasn't going to be able to even complete it. So there's a couple of sessions I did on the bike where I literally rode 90k, like a time trial just to make sure <laughs> I could do it. So lining up for the race, again, like my coach Lance and I, I think we did as well as we could have given kind of my constraints on my time and, and all that kind of stuff. And really, we just, yeah, trained as hard as we could, given the time we had. And and to I have a, at least a big background in racing. So I feel like when I get into the race scenario, I have a bit of wisdom and experience to draw back on. I think that helped me a lot. But although it wasn't much helping me when in the final kilometers of the run, I was starting to cramp up and I had to will myself to the finish. <laughs> Well, you willed yourself indeed. You've always been one of the stronger swimmers in the sport. How much does that play into your race planning? And how much does that still factor into your training? Like, for example, are you do you spend a disproportionate amount of your time keeping the swim where it is? Or, or are you at the point where you don't have to train quite as much to be as fast of a swimmer as you are? 
Yeah. Growing up, I grew up as a club swimmer and all that. So I had a great background with technique and, and, and getting the miles in when I was quite young. And so going into triathlon and, and ITU and world triathlon races, the swim is, is quite important. I mean, you're not going to win the race in the swim, but it is very critical to swim well enough. And, and so we invested a lot of time and especially going into Tokyo as well. We invested a lot of time in the pool, making sure I was as fit as I could be for the, for the swim portion going into long course as a, I guess as a reflection of how much time the swim takes during the race, the swim, I guess it isn't as much time as the bike and the run. And so my philosophy and, and with that was, and I'm lucky because I have this background where I feel like I've invested so much time in swimming over the years that I can kind of uh, enjoy a return on investment in terms of not having to put as much time in. You know, I still train very hard in the pool. I just don't swim as frequently as I used to. I think leading into, I guess, from kind of when I started really training in, in January this year, leading into that boulder race, two to three times a week was my swim frequency. Often each one was probably, you know, there was some good quality in there, but yeah, the, the amount of times I was swimming was just not, uh, it, it was not, it, we took a bit of a risk and, and maybe not doing as much, but it, it, it paid off in my opinion. Can you compare that to what an, uh, another pro would do? Like how often would a, another pro who's not quite as a proficient swimmer as you be in the pool? Yeah, maybe a pro who didn't grow up swimming and, and kind of came to it a bit later. I think they're probably putting in maybe five to six times a week in the pool and and, and they're essentially making up for lost time in, in that sense. Swimming is it's finicky, as a lot of people know, right? You can put in a lot of time, but if you're missing a few points in technique and whatnot, you're kind of missing out, I think. Whereas on the bike, you can kind of hammer away if you have a good enough bike fit and you'll get the job done. But with swimming, because you've got this medium of water you're trying to go through it as smoothly as possible, I guess, yeah, for another athlete, you know, it's important for them to, uh, to be doing the right kind of, of training as well as not just putting in more time. Yeah. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with Matt or haven't maybe seen Matt, you're very tall. You're over six feet, right? How tall are you? Yeah. Yeah. Six, six, four, six, four, six, four. And so that's a real benefit in the water because we know that longer is less drag and faster compared to broader. And you have a long stride and you have been great on the, on the run. You've had a terrific run splits. Have you noticed, does it cause you issues on the bike? Is, is that where you need to make up time? Yeah, certainly. I think just looking at my peers and, and again, this year was such a huge year in learning and we're always going to be learning anyways, but this year was like massive, literally just being amongst you know, the other athletes and seeing kind of their setups and stuff. I think for me going forward, I'll probably have to dial in the aero position a bit more. Um, just because if you're doing that much time on the bike, you want to be as efficient as possible and, and make the most of the, the effort you're putting in. And I think for sure I could, I could be better in terms of my positioning. And I think just overall, uh, cycling probably could improve as well. Yeah, I think of another athlete like you, Andy Potts, right? Also a terrific mm -hmm. swimmer, a very tall guy, great runner, and made himself into quite a proficient biker. So there's hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We'll absolutely. Yeah. Thankfully, biking isn't isn't so much technique-based. So uh, as long as I'm doing a good job putting in some some quality miles, I think that'll help. But uh, right. it's crazy. Right. These 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 pros and, and their their 3D printed aero bars, all this kind of stuff, it's it's nuts. It's it's wild to uh, to witness for sure.
Yes, and it trickles down. Uh, yes. It trickles down because age groupers <laughs> continue to believe they can buy their way to the speed. And in some cases, it definitely makes a difference. For but sure. I think in a lot of cases, maybe not. But th- mm-hmm. speaking of that, I- I'm curious, for those of us who can't swim like you, and that's 99.9% of us, <laughs> What do you suggest that the average age grouper do? Because I, I know for me, I, I've spoken over and over again, and I, and I preach this as a coach to my own athletes, that you're going to spend a lot of time in the pool. It's going to be incredibly frustrating. You're not going to get a huge return in terms of time gains, but it is going to make you more fit swimming with the way you do, and it's going to improve your ability to bike and run later in the race if you spend more time swimming. But is there anything that you could suggest for an average age grouper to try and what can they do to get faster besides just putting in the time? Yeah, yeah. And like I said before, it's it's the quality of the, I guess, the time you're putting in. You Like a lot of folks, age groupers, they tend to be quite busy people. So you want to get the best return on investment for your time. So I think if you're not using a coach, finding a coach who, even if you can see him once or twice a month or something, and to get videos and, and have them look at them. And even if you're on pool on your own, if you or if you got someone there who can take a video of you when you're you're when you're swimming hard and, and you're maybe at the end of a, a hard set or something when technique is generally starting to slow down or, or fail a bit, it, just that kind of stuff. As I said before, swimming as a percentage of time in the race, it's it's not really that much. So there might end up being kind of a ceiling of the time that's worth to put in the swim. But I do think that the best way is to get a, a qualified set of eyes uh, on you if you don't have that already. Great suggestion. I'm curious, now that you're part of the pro ranks in 70.3 and you look at what's going on around you at some of these athlete performances that we just saw in St. George a couple of months back and and in Kona in October, are you amazed at some of these performances or does this just seem like a natural evolution of the sport in terms of what we're seeing with these guys able to come back, race and race again? Some of the Norwegians, for example, but even other athletes who are, are just laying down these incredible times. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I I guess because I've I've competed against these guys and when I was racing world triathlon events, I never got on the podium of a WTS, but I know what it felt like to to kind of run at that pace for a bit and it's just it's mind-blowing and the level just keeps getting raised and raised, which is super exciting. Like I just enjoy honestly watching all these races when I'm not competing in them because it's just so incredible to just see how fast these guys are going. And now being in a having competed at least in a 70.3, I can't really, I don't know if I can fully appreciate the Ironman, but the the speeds these guys are going for these 70.3 races, like it's, it's just nuts. It's yeah. (laughs) It's absolutely incredible. And a lot of people have surmised that a lot of this has to do with the influx of ITU racers moving up to the longer distances that there's something about ITU training, which is much higher intensity, pretty high volume, not, not a big, not a huge difference in volume between ITU and 70.3, but it's just higher intensity. I've heard uh, several coaches speak to that being a big factor at play leading to some of these performances. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's so interesting to see now because it, it feels like we're in just such a golden age of racing with all these different opportunities with Super League and, and PTO races, obviously Ironman and World Triathlon. These athletes have so many options to choose from with respect to racing. And so I, and it just seems to me, maybe one of these, I guess these, these are the thoughts that go in my mind every once in a while. It's like the advent of these super shoes, I think obviously they make people go faster, but I think one of the things that they, they help is just recovery from hard efforts and training and racing. And so you get 
these good athletes racing really good athletes all over these different disciplines and they're doing it with more frequency. So I think, yeah, it just, it's just like a, a cycle of you're racing better people, you're going faster and, and it just keeps going. And so it just, I guess it just kind of perpetuates itself. <laughs> Yeah, you could train, you could train harder, you can race harder, and you can race more frequently because you're recovering better. And yeah, yeah, I I agree. I think the equipment probably definitely plays a role here as well. Do you have any aspirations to race the full distance? You mentioned it briefly. Yeah, I definitely feel like I need to to do it at least once. It's interesting because obviously with the way the PTO is designed their rankings and all that kind of stuff, there's a lot of incentives for doing Ironman versus just staying and doing 70.3. So I'd like to do it when I'm as fit as I can be. So yeah, definitely sometime in the future. I'd probably not this year, but maybe next year we'll see. And what does that look like for a guy like you who's come from ITU now doing 70.3? Do you plan that out? you're making it sound like you would consider it for 25. So or sorry for 24. Is that something you actually start putting like looking at the calendar and start designing training around that this far in advance? Honestly, for me, no. And maybe that's just my personality, because I feel like all this year as well, I kind of just flew by the seat of my pants. Like I, I didn't start this year with the, I didn't even know if I was really going to be doing 70 point three racing this year, things just kind of snowballed through the year. And, and and so I think it's just going to be this, probably the same this year, really. I think I maybe compared to a lot of people, uh, I probably don't plan as much as I should. But uh, it's more like, oh, like, it feels like it would make sense for me to do one in 2024. So that's kind of the vibe I'm going off of. And when you as a professional are thinking about an Ironman, uh, like us as age groupers, it, obviously, we're going to have different goals. And when we think about what race we want to do, for me, it's it's maybe qualifying for the world championships. For somebody else, it's going to be what's the easiest race for me to complete. For you, is it? do you do you look for races that are going to fit your strengths? Or do you look at how, do, how would you as a professional looking for your first Ironman, what would you look for in a race that you would choose to do? Yeah, I might look at timing of the year. So say I, I, I want to do a big a big block in the winter or something, I might pick an early season Ironman like in April or something to uh, to target. I, I think in the end, I would probably choose one maybe just based off my strengths. It's nice to have a good positive experience <laughs> in your first go. So yeah, I, I think I think I would probably choose maybe like a flatter race just because I'm a bigger guy. Maybe the hills and stuff aren't as are, aren't in my wheelhouse as much. But uh, so you do so consider the course. Races. I yeah, do. So you sure. do consider yeah. the course. And and I'm curious, as a strong swimmer, do you do you think of things like ocean versus lake versus river? Signing up for a race, I'm usually not thinking about the swim too too much. I think if maybe my swimming wasn't as much of a strength, I might consider it for sure. I don't I don't really have a preference swimming wetsuit, non-wetsuit. I enjoy doing like ocean swims and having the the surf and the waves and stuff there's not really that many of them which is unfortunate because because i really enjoy the 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 dynamic of it it's not just you're swimming in a flat lake uh with those ocean swims you can catch a wave and and get ahead of somebody who is 30 seconds ahead of you or something there's always that kind of fun dynamics but yeah i won't consider it too too much so uh, i know you say you're pretty loosey-goosey with your plans and stuff (laughs) you did qualify for the 70.3 world championships in finland are you are you planning on participating there i i am for sure so my wife kirsten casper she's going to be in europe kind of in that time frame she's got two important olympic qualifying races she's trying to qualify for team usa so i imagine i'll be over there at that time and yeah I, i definitely plan on on being there for sure and that leads me to my next question, which is, how does that, first of all, congratulations on your, your, your wedding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And how, how, how do you guys manage your very busy training and race schedules? 
Yeah, it's not easy. I would say ultimately, at the end of the day, in in triathlon, my like I said before, my north star was was competing at the Olympics for Team Canada, trying to win a medal. So I achieved that. And so when we when we kind of plan our seasons and stuff, I'm kind of almost waiting for her to to figure out her season, and then I'll kind of slot in where it makes sense. Obviously, Worlds is a focus, and I'll be training for that. But uh, she's got her World Series races and whatnot, and so it's just the I guess that's that stage in life where where I'm at, where I'm kind of like I did did the thing, and I obviously enjoy racing professionally. And there's just so many options that I can kind of make up my season that way, and and that's I. I I enjoy that. Do you guys get to train together very much? We do. Yeah, I definitely, I do a lot of swimming with Kirsten. She's a great, she's a better swimmer than me, I think. <laughs> so we Saying do a lot. a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, she's, she's good. So we do a lot of swimming together and we'll do like long runs together, or easy bike rides or whatever. And sometimes it was actually kind of interesting. Like I said, I'm trying to help her as much as I can with her Olympic qualifying. So earlier, kind of going into the fall, she was doing these track workouts and I'd go out on the track and pace her for her, whatever, 8K workout. And then I'd run, basically run home from the track. I'd do a few diversions here and there and get in kind of a nice build run. So I'd get in a big 27K run, but I'd also be able to help her and, and I'd kind of get the right stimulus because, you know, I'd start this build run with, with some tired legs. So we we make it work for sure. That's great. So I want to hear a little bit about the Tempo newsletter. Yeah, Tell us about that. Yeah. Tell us where it came from and what the plans are for that. Yeah, no, it's it's been super fun trying to to build something. I, I think I have a bit of an extensive athletic resume, but honestly, my kind of work and, and life resume is quite thin. And, and I definitely made some sacrifices trying to get to the Olympics over the years. And one of those was unfortunately not completing my education. And so I'm actually chipping away right now at some school as well. But the reality is, I think at the age I'm at, it's important to have something on the on the resume, on the Palmares. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm working on building this newsletter. And I'm actually working with my brother, which is super fun as well. And we got the family connection. And, and he's actually done this these newsletters before. So he has a great playbook. And so, yeah, he's he's my brother Jeff and I are working on this. And we're basically trying to create a five-minute triathlon newsletter where you get in the morning, you scroll through it, maybe see an article or two you like. Maybe there's a podcast in there that piques your interest. So yeah, it's just basically a, a quick hit of news. And I noticed that in one of the recent episodes, it included an interview that you did. So actually, you're, you're putting in some original content as well as linking to existing content. Is yeah. your plan to to do more and more of that? I think so. Obviously, it's just honestly fun for me to to talk to the athletes and and get their perspective on on things. And I think for for people who are interested in triathlon and and the pro side and all that kind of stuff, it's just just seeing in the minds of these pro athletes and and what they're working on and and all that kind of stuff a different perspective. I think it's unique. And yeah, I'd like to do more of that for sure. I think the goal right now is to try and just get the basic template down and and obviously keep just executing Tuesday Friday. Those are the days. So keep executing on that and just see where it takes us. And where can people I'll put some links in the show notes, but where can people find out more about the tempo and subscribe to it? And I, I should say, I have been subscribing to it. And I find it quite enjoyable. As you said, awesome. you, you said it's five minutes, it takes me less than that to get through it. And, and if you want to attach, if you want to hit some of the links and get to some of the longer forum articles, there's some really good stuff there. Where can people find out more about it and sign up? Yeah, it's just at the uh, thetemponews.com. So that's that's it. Uh, that's the URL. And yeah, people are are reading it and maybe they want to see something else or, or they have feedback. Feedback is always welcome. But uh, yeah, thanks for uh, reading, Jeff. That's, that's super awesome. Oh, absolutely. I hope you're yeah. enjoying and it. I hope you're enjoying it. 
I have been. I have been. And I like the fact that it comes twice a week. It's not a daily thing, which would make it more than I think a frequency that I would want. But I'm, you put in there that you can reply to the, the newsletter. And that was interesting to me. That reply goes to who? Goes to me. I'm the oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, okay. So, because often when you see reply, it, when you hit a reply to a to a newsletter to a distribution like that, the reply usually you usually can't reply to a newsletter. So that mm-hmm. was interesting to me that it's set up in such a way that you can reply and it goes directly to you. So that's good to know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, we're we're a two man operation at the moment, so uh, it's it's pretty uh, pretty low key that way. <laughs> well, I was impressed that you had. I, I think. By the second or third week that I was getting it, you said you had four or five hundred subscribers, which was yeah, yeah pretty awesome. impressive growth very quickly. So yeah, congratulations yeah. to you guys. We'll, we'll definitely be continuing to try and just build subscribers. And I would really like to try and build a community. I don't necessarily know how to do that, but that's that's one of my goals is to build a fun triathlon community based around this newsletter. And and we're going to be starting some new things in the new year. We'll, we'll do some giveaways and, and stuff and just keep building that out. But it's interesting actually launching this time of year, maybe not the best time because a lot of the races and stuff aren't happening. Like it's it's kind of a dead time for news. So I figure if we can get through this time of year, we're, we're going to be okay on the other side. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the people who stick around are gonna, then going to proselytize it when you have more content to put in there start For coming sure. in next year. So good stuff. Well, Matt, I really appreciate your uh, stopping by to have a chat with me. Matt Sharp is a former Canadian Olympian. He is the winner of this past year's Boulder 70.3. Will we see you on the start line in June? Yeah, definitely. If if I'm around, if I'm not in Europe with Kirsten or anything, I will certainly be there. And yeah, hopefully see as many people as I can at the races. Say hi if uh, if if you recognize me or whatever. I love meeting new people. Yeah, well, I hope you'll be there because I'll be racing and yeah. it'd be great to, to see we'll be, you out there again. We'll be yelling at each other on the run there. Exactly. Yeah, same as last year. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, thank you again for being here. And uh, it was a real pleasure chatting with you. Good luck with the tempo. And I'm sure we'll... Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Jeff. And that's it for another episode. The TriDark Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDark. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridarcoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridark Podcast Facebook page, Tridark Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, 
train healthy.